today's scripture reading is Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all, are all like one unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Good morning. Good morning. A special welcome to all of our visitors. Uh, we're glad you're here. I'd like to start this morning by telling a story. When I was in college, so this was quite a long time ago. No, it was, it was long enough ago that I can't remember all the details, so, but that's a good thing. You don't need to know all the details, so I'll keep the story relatively vague. But I knew a girl who I was pretty close friends with, and it just seemed like a storm cloud followed her around. It seemed like everything that could go wrong to a family happened to her. It it almost seemed like she was cursed. I remember just being devastated on her behalf, thinking, why? And it didn't seem like she was making any mistakes. It didn't seem like she was sinning. She was trying to live correctly. She was trying to do well in school, but she would have to leave school every few months, it seemed like, because another family member had passed. And even though I didn't know any of the people who had passed, and even though the tragedies hadn't affected me directly, I just remember one moment in prayer where I questioned God. Where I, for the first time in my life, felt like the psalmist in Psalm 10. Why do you stand afar off from me, O Lord? Or David in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it wasn't for anything that had happened to me. It was... Oh, for her, on her behalf, I would ask, I asked God, why have you allowed these tragedies to occur? Why have you shielded me, but not her? What's the difference between her and I? Why have you allowed this to take place? And in a moment of sadness, I questioned the way God runs the world. Now, I wonder how many of you have had a similar experience. I would venture a guess to say most of us have had such an experience. Even if we're maybe a little afraid to admit it because it sounds pretty bad when we say we questioned God. But you know, there are whole psalms that question God. Psalms of worship and praise and prayer that question Him. And there are entire books of the Bible dedicated to the questioning of God, which is what we'll be looking at today. Go ahead and turn to the book of Job. Job. Purely as a work of Jewish literature, the book of Job has had a lot of praise from scholars over the, over the years. Thomas Carlyle called the book of Job all men's book. Victor Hugo said, Tomorrow... If all literature was to be destroyed and it was left to me to retain one work only, I should save Job. Alfred Lord Tennyson called it the greatest poem, whether of ancient or modern literature. Daniel Webster said, The book of Job, taken as a mere work of literary genius, is, the most, is one of the most wonderful productions of any age or any language. Such praise is heaped onto this book but I can't help but feel it's somewhat ironic. These are a lot of them secular thinkers who love this book. 
And yet, in my experience, we Christians aren't all that eager to study the book of Job. Even though it's such an amazing book, it's been lauded upon by scholars, and yet we as Christians, we'd rather stay away from the book of Job. Why? Maybe it makes us uncomfortable. We don't like the idea of questioning God. Or maybe it's something even more innocent. Maybe it's just challenging. It's a long book of Hebrew poetry. 42 chapters. It's quite a challenge to study the book of Job. And so perhaps that's part of what holds us back. It is, I think when we do hold back, when we simplify the book of Job and simply... Uh, would rather we'd rather read chapters one and two and maybe the final couple of chapters and leave it at that, right? We we'd like to skip past the part in the middle, but when we do that, we really miss out on an amazing experience. I recently had the privilege of studying through the Book of Job, and I have to say, this was probably the first time I really—not probably—it was the first time I really dove into the poetry. Okay, and I was blown away. I was blown away by the power of this book. We do it a disservice when we back away from it or when we skirt around it or we simplify it. And one of the things I noticed that was just so mind-blowing to me was that the book of Job is, in essence, putting God on trial. And that may seem like an inflammatory statement, but as I studied, there seemed little room for doubt. This book is putting God on trial. It's almost like a courtroom drama. It even has an accuser. It has defendants. It has cross-examination. It's a courtroom drama. It's quite the epic courtroom drama, in fact. And it is God who is on trial. Now, what we're going to do this morning is, is different than most of my sermons. We're going to actually kind of do a survey of the book of Job as a whole. And... This is a court that is in session for 42 chapters, okay? So we're not going to be able to cover everything, okay? Don't worry, we're not going to spend time on everything. uh, And we're going to move relatively, I'd say very quickly, considering, okay? So I'm going to ask you two things. Number one, buckle up, okay? Because we're going to be shooting through these arguments very quickly. Number two, I ask you to study this book on your own. Especially if some of the things that I present to you are as new to you as they were to me. Because this is a book that demands our attention and is a book that has a lot to say for us and for our lives. So what we're going to do is we're going to survey the book of Job. Again, I I promise, briefly survey the book of Job from the perspective of this courtroom drama. We're going to look at the accuser. We're going to look at the defendant. and We're going to look at the arguments, the main arguments that are made between in this in this drama that takes place. So, let's begin. Job chapter 1. In the first 5 verses we're given insight into the character of Job. Job is presented as the best of us. He is an ideal figure, right? He is he's not only rich in possessions, he's rich in character. And we see him making sacrifices on behalf of his children because not only does he cherish his children, he cherishes their spiritual life. He wants them to be holy. And that is what's most important to him. The most important thing that is, it's obvious, 
to his life is his relationship with God and his worship of the Almighty. He is a person who is beyond reproach and has achieved the highest success uh, by any standard. All of this we gather from the first five verses, and then in verse 6, we're swept into heaven to witness a very intriguing event. Go ahead and turn to Job chapter 1, if you haven't already, and look at verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. So, now we are introduced to the prosecutor, the accuser. Satan enters this, uh, presumably, the throne room of God as an uninvited guest. It's quite an interesting story. Now, our English translations tell us it is Satan. That might be misleading. Here's what I mean by that. The Hebrew word would have been understood more of a, uh, as a title than a name, and it simply means the accuser. Okay? Now, it could very well be Satan, but the only way we would know that is through the benefit of hindsight. In other words, Jews who read this book when it was first written or heard this uh, or read it even up to the, up to the time of the New Testament, they wouldn't have understood it to be Satan the way we understand Satan. Right? A lot of those revelations about Satan are given to us in the New Testament. So they would have read this slightly differently. That he is an accuser entering into the presence of God. His, his, really, his identity is somewhat a mystery. Many Jews, many Jewish scholars, think of him as an angel still under God's control, but simply has a different job than the other angels. Think of him as a policy watchdog. And he's been going around on the earth, and he's been observing things, and now he's come to God with a prosecution, with an accusation. What is that accusation? Well, let's read. Verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Notice it's God who brings Job into the discussion. Verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So now we've been introduced to the accuser. And here's what he says. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? Now, on the first read-through, we might be tempted to say that it is Job who is on trial. And in a real sense, he is on trial. It is his, mo- his motives are being questioned. The friends of Job, we put that in air quotes, his, his, er, his friends okay, are constantly accusing him throughout the rest of this book. So in a very real sense, Job is on trial. But he's not the main defendant. Look at what the accuser says. He says, have you, God, not made a hedge around him? 
put forth your hand on him and he will curse you to your face. In other words, he is questioning the way God runs the world. And he says, Job is just working the system. Job is taking advantage of all these blessings you're giving him. And he says, if, if it were not this way, then Job would curse you. He would turn away. So, of course, God gives him power to test this theory. So the defendant in this case is God. God is on trial. And that mindset, that questioning of God, continues throughout the rest of the book. So we see, of course, chapter 2, the, this experiment goes... Excuse me, chapter 1 first. Job loses everything in the span of a day. Let me repeat that. In the span of a day, he loses his children, his possessions. And then... As Richard read to us, he still responded with great faith. It tells us in Job 1.22, Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Then in chapter 2, they, the prosecutor and the defendant reconvene, and basically it goes to round 2 of the test of Job, where Job is then smote with boils all over his body. His own wife tells him to curse God and die, but even so, Job doesn't do it. And we're left at the end of chapter 2 to wonder what's going to happen next. Well, what happens next is that the book takes a turn. And it becomes this real courtroom drama that I've been describing. It becomes chapter after chapter of arguments, of debate between the different, different sides uh, to, uh, to the discussion. And three main questions are asked in, in these arguments that we're going to look at. First of all, the question is, is God just? Is asked. Does God run the universe according to a strict principle of justice? And how is Job's suffering to be explained? Now, each character from the story approaches these three questions from different angles. Think of it like a triangle. Three sides to an argument, three statements that cannot all be true at once. Here are the three statements. Number one, Job is righteous. Job is innocent in, 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 with regard to the suffering that is taking place. In other words, his suffering is not divine punishment. Second statement, God is good. He is just. Third statement, God runs the world... According to a strict principle of justice, more specifically, he runs the world according to what's called the doctrine of retribution. All three of these statements cannot be true at once. And each character comes to it from a different angle and tries to point to one statement or another and say, this one's false. No, this one's false. What happens, in starting in chapter 3 and continuing onward, is that the three friends... Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they approach this argument and they say, well, we know God is good, we know He's just, and we know that God runs the world according to the doctrine of retribution. Therefore, Job must have committed some kind of sin. So they point to this statement. They say, Job's not righteous. That's their argument, and they're sticking to it. And they really they use all sorts of arguments. To, uh, to prove this point. This, now let me clarify what the doctrine of divine retribution is. It's the idea that God will always reward or punish people in this life. And this is what they believe. 
Nothing Job says can change their mind. They use all sorts of, of bad argumentation. They say, well, we're older, therefore we're wiser, therefore, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. They say, well, everybody knows this is true, therefore, what can you say against it? They say, oh, over the past generations, everybody agrees that the doctrine of divine retribution is true. Therefore, they're appealing to that higher authority without any real evidence, right? And they continue to make these arguments and they're constantly telling Job, you must have done something really bad because obviously you're being punished really severely. And Job always responds by maintaining his innocence. Now, I think the, this their doctrine, their, their assumption is really well laid out in Job chapter 18. I'll read a few verses here. Starting in verse 5. It says, Indeed the light of the wicked goes out, and the flame of his fire gives no light. The light in his tent is darkened, and his lamp goes out above him. His vigorous stride is shortened, and his own scheme brings him down. For he is thrown into the net by his own feet. And he steps on the webbing. A snare seizes him by the heel, and a trap snaps shut on him. A noose for him is hidden in the ground, and a trap for him on the path. <coughs> Excuse me. All around, terrors frighten him and harry him at every step. His strength is famished, and calamity is ready at his side. His skin is devoured by disease. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He is torn from the security of his tent, and they march him before the king of terrors. There dwells in his tent nothing of his. Brimstone is scattered on his inhabitation. His roots are dried below, and his branch is cut off above. Memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name abroad. He is driven from light into darkness and chased from the inhabited world. He has no offspring or posterity among his people, nor any survivor where he sojourned. Those in the west are appalled at his fate, and those in the east are seized with horror. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. And this is the place of him who does not know God. This is their assumption, and they're sticking to it. That if you sin, you are foolish, you will be punished. You will face calamity. Sure, it may seem like things are going well for a little while, but in the end, in this life, you will be punished. Such are the dwellings of the wicked. Now, Job responds to this by saying, well, you're wrong. Just look around. And, in fact, he, he brings up several examples which are pretty irrefutable, at least in his mind. They say this to him, and he says, well, then why do the wicked still live? Look around you. And then here at the end of this verse, he says, and the rod of God is not on them. Now, let me ask you something. Does that make you uncomfortable? What about this statement? Job chapter 9, verses 22 through 24. Job says, it is all one. Therefore, I say, he, being God, destroys the guiltless and the wicked. If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Does that statement make you uncomfortable? It made me uncomfortable. 
Does this sound like the Job from chapter 1? I think one of the most striking things Job says is found in Job chapter 24. He draws an image of the righteous and the wicked and he's comparing them to each other, contrasting them. And he says, the wicked, he says, they're slave masters. They're thieves. They're takers. They are stomping people under their boots. Meanwhile, it's the good people, the righteous people, who are the ones under the boot. They're the slaves. They're the ones being taken from, stolen from. And he says he, he, says he looks out on the world, he sees all of this, and this is the conclusion he comes to. Verse 12, he says, From the city men groan, and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not pay attention to fall. Does that sound like the Job from chapter 1? The Job we really love to talk about? Here's the fascinating thing about Job. And I think you can understand from his perspective, he's on an emotional roller coaster. He's bouncing back and forth between what he believes. Some of the time he makes great statements of faith, like in chapter 1 and throughout the rest of the book. But those statements of faith are mingled with statements that aren't so great. Statements where he implies God perhaps isn't just. In fact, there are sometimes it seems like he's implying God is all around malevolent. See, Job is more complex than, than the picture, the, the portrait we like to paint. We like to look at Job only in chapters 1 and 2, hold him up on a pedestal and say, Should, we need to be more like him. And yes, he is a great example. And in, in no, at no point in the book does he actually turn his back on God. But he is demanding an explanation. And he's demanding it in no uncertain terms. Think of it, again, as the triangle. We have Job's friend telling Job, hey, you must have sinned, you must have done something wrong. Well, Job says, I know I'm innocent. He says that over and over again. He says, I know that this is not divine punishment. And he also says, I also know that the doctrine of retribution, even if it's not true, ought to be. You see, whenever they come at him with the doctrine of retribution, he doesn't always respond by saying it's false. He doesn't throw that statement out the window. In fact, he, he responds by agreeing with it philosophically. But he says, it doesn't apply in my case. And he's wondering why. And so, what does that mean logically? Well, as we've seen in some of his more brash statements, it logically means he is saying, well, perhaps God isn't good. Perhaps God isn't just. Because I'm suffering and I am innocent. And the world ought to be run according to the doctrine of divine retribution. People ought to be punished in this life and rewarded in this life. But that's not what hap- what's happening to me. So perhaps God isn't just. Again, none of this is to say he's turning his back on God. He's demanding an explanation. He says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation. For a godless man may not come before his presence. Listen carefully to my speech and let my declaration fill your ears. Behold now, I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. In this moment and in several other moments, he says, hey, God better come down and talk to me. And you know what? I'm innocent enough. He says, I'm righteous enough. I'm good enough that, I can, I can, that he should approach me, that I'm, I'm able to listen. I will be vindicated, he says. 
Now, there are other moments. Again, he's on an emotional roller coaster. There are other moments when he says, you know what, if I'm really honest with myself, I would tremble at his presence, which is a great foreshadowing to what happens at the end of the book. But he's still in this, in most moments, demanding an explanation. And he's also proclaiming his own innocence from the rooftops. And not just his own innocence. He's proclaiming his own goodness. In Job chapter 31, go ahead and turn there, we're given insight into what he's thinking. In fact, I would encourage you to read Job's, Job chapters 27 through 31. That's your homework. It's, one of, it's his final speech in the book. Job's final speech is in chapters 27 through 31. And in it, he just goes on and on about his own righteousness. Let me read some of it to you. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And what is the portion of God from above? Or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened after deceit, let him weigh with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way, or my heart followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck to my hands, let me sow and another eat, and let my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked in a neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. Quite a harsh statement. But he goes on like this. Verse after verse, this whole speech And I have to admit, as I read it, with a deeper understanding of Job building up to this point than I had ever had in my life, I finally read this chapter and I thought to myself, you know what? He sounds a little bit self-righteous. That's the way it came across to me. And you know what? That's the way it came across to a guy named Elihu. In Job chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, it says, Then these three men ceased answering Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned. Against Job his anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had not found an answer and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he and when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger Burn. And this starts Elihu's speech, which goes on for several chapters. Now, you may ask, who is Elihu? I will answer, I don't know. In fact, none of us do. He shows up out of nowhere. And there's a lot of debate as to how you should interpret his speech. And I've gone back and forth on this. I've come to the conclusion that I'll present to you. That doesn't mean I'm 100% right. Uh, But there are people out there who would group him in with the other three friends and say he's just as bad as them. He's accusing Job of the same thing. And then there are people like me who would say, I think it's slightly, I think it's different than that. Because his anger, it's rooted in what's said here in verses 1 and 2. Job was righteous in his own eyes and he was trying to justify himself rather than justify God. And so when, when, Elihu gives his speech. Elihu tells him this much. He says this, the same thing. He tells him, you know what? You need, shouldn't be defending yourself over God. 
it's almost as if Elihu has been listening to Job go on and on about how good he is. And he says, that's enough. God is greater. No matter how good you are. You need to stop trying to accuse God and start realizing your own faults. That's pretty much the argument he uses. At least my interpretation. Now, I, I wish we could discuss his speech in more detail. But again, this is a survey. But as he's speaking, Elihu starts describing a storm. And he's, he's really, he's, he's drawing up creation as a witness for God. Powerful, mighty creation. A thunderstorm is what he uses. And it's almost as if, has any, who here has read a Shakespeare script? Okay. Wow, not, not, wow. Come on, people. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Got to read one. Okay. In Shakespeare's scripts, there's not a lot of stage direction. And so what happens oftentimes is that the this characters speak about what's taking place around them. And that's similar, I think, to what's happening here with Elihu. Elihu is describing a storm, and he's using it to dis- really to describe God's power and majesty. But at the same time, I think we're meant to read that and picture a storm brewing all around them. And then in chapter 37, God finally speaks out of the storm, out of the whirlwind. Go ahead and look at chapter 37. Excuse me, chapter 38, verses 1 through 7. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Can you imagine being in a position where God shows up and says, Okay, you're so smart, you tell me how it should, be, how it should go. Buckle up, right? <laughs> that's, that's kind of what Job goes through. God says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? And on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And he goes on like this for many, many verses. Speaking out of this storm, he questions Job. He says, if you know how things ought to run, then you explain it to me. How, who did you make the hawk stretch out its wings and fly? Do you give the horse its might? Did you place the stars into their constellations? He goes on like this. Till Job finally responds by basically stuttering. Right? God says, respond to me. And Job says, I can't. And, Job, and God continues. He brings up more powerful creation as his witness. And he even brings up the Leviathan and the Behemoth. Two great monstrous beasts that are, that are kind of a mystery. But I think the point is that we're supposed to be comparing them to the world and to the creation itself. And in an understanding that creation itself is awe-inspiring, it's powerful, but it's also scary. And we can't begin to understand it. We may think we know how the world ought to be run, but our feeble minds just aren't equipped to run this infinitely complex universe. We can't do it. And so Job and his friends have been on their high horse in, in, in a real sense, saying, talking about how the world ought to be run. 
It ought to be run according to the doctrine of retribution or divine retribution. But God says, no, you just don't understand. So in essence, the verdict of this trial is thrown out as a mistrial. It's thrown out by the judge. Because they've been arguing and they've all been assuming that the same thing is true. Job's friends assume because the doctrine of retribution is true, therefore Job must be sinning. Job says, well, I know I'm not, I haven't sinned, therefore it's obviously not run according to the doctrine of retribution, so I guess God isn't just. And then God comes in and he says, no, you're wrong. The world is not run according to the doctrine of retribution. It's not designed to prevent suffering. The world is scary. And it's also very complex. And we, with our human minds, cannot begin to understand it. Only God could understand how to run the world. And that's the point. God is infinitely complex. He's infinitely complex. Only He can run the world, this complex world. Therefore, we better humble ourselves. And that's exactly what Job does. In chapter... (coughs) Excuse me. Here in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. See how he's mirroring what God said to him? Finally, in verse 5, he says, I I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He repents. Because he realizes he was speaking about things he didn't understand. He was trying to tell God how to run the world. He says, I, you've, you've shown up, you've talked to me, and now I realize my human brain is puny. There's, there's just no way I could comprehend it. Therefore, when you're faced with such a, a realization, really you're given two options. You can either trust him or you can turn away from him. And Job chooses to trust. And I hope that's the choice we would all make. We all need to realize that this universe is too complex for us to understand and it's not designed to prevent human suffering. But in the midst of our suffering, we have a choice to trust God. Now here's the thing about Job. At the end of the story, he's given back his wealth and he's given new children. But it's not because he passed the test. It's not because he did anything right. It's because God wanted to give him those things. God was gracious to him. You see, and, and this is a point of Job that I think we often miss because we want to read only chapters 1 and 2 and we want to put Job on a pedestal and we say, oh, he deserved to have all that stuff come back. No, Job didn't deserve anything because even though he's presented as the best of us, our best is like filthy rags to God. We don't deserve anything from him except punishment. Because God is not only infinitely complex, He is infinitely holy. And no matter how good we are, we are nothing compared to Him. Even Job. 
hope we all understand just how broken we are because of our sin. We like to compare ourselves to each other and say, oh, I'm, I'm better than most people. I, I, I've done a good job. Yay! Right? God should reward me. That's not how it works. We're broken. It is His graciousness, His goodness that gives us salvation. Not our goodness. And Job understood this. Job understood that all of humanity has been on trial and been found guilty. See, we've all been facing, we've all faced the judge and we've all deserved death. And that's the sentence that's coming our way. And we can't stand before God. He's holy, infinitely so. We are nothing compared to Him. We can't even stand in His presence. We, we can't do anything but plead guilty. Job understood this. Job understood that we needed a go-between. We needed someone who could understand both sides, who could be our defendant. And in Job chapter 9, verses 32-33, Job makes an incredible statement that I believe points forward to Christ. He says, For he is not man, talking about God, as I am, that I may answer him. Together, or excuse me, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. We have that umpire. We have a defendant who knows both sides because he, he is God and man. He, he understands both plights. And he is our defendant. He's there standing in the way and he is getting our sentence reversed. Not only is he waiving the death penalty, he's giving us utter freedom. Incredible, right? And so I have one more question for you. Have you thrown yourself at the mercy of the court? Have you put your faith, your trust in Christ? He is longing to save you. Please accept his invitation. Please come as together we stand and sing.